0: Welcome to our Glendale Baptist Church Bible study. Uh, Today we are going to look at Revelation chapter 16 and we'll go cover as much as we can from verses 1 through 16. So let me read those verses. Revelation chapter 16 and we'll read down through verse 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say just are you o holy one who is and who was and are for those for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent nor give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day. Of God, of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. May God richly bless Both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now you'll notice we stopped. It mentions the seven bowls of wrath and we stopped at bowl six and we'll explain that more next week. So let's look at a few things here. The first thing to note about this section of the first six bowls of wrath is that the judgments that are symbolized in the bowl of, in the bowls of wrath are visions that reflect the plagues against Egypt. So we've mentioned this before, that there is a continuing parallel to uh, God delivering his people from Egyptian bondage. And here in Revelation, because there is, and we've mentioned this also before, that the dual theme, as we move towards the consummation of human history, the dual theme is reward and redemption for the people of God, And condemnation and judgment against the enemies of God. So the imagery of the Egyptian exodus is is flavored throughout uh, many of the visions that we see. But especially here, these bowls of wrath are are, are intentional in paralleling uh, some of the the nature of some of the plagues against uh, Egypt. And let me just give you three examples. In the first bowl, we see in verse, um, yeah, the, the first bowl uh, where, it, where it talks about the sores or the painful sores. The cross-reference here would be uh, Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, that in a similar fashion, God brought sores not on his people but on the Egyptians. Uh, second is the second bowl and as well as the third bowl. Second and third bowl having to deal with blood. The cross reference here would be Exodus chapter seven, verses fourteen through twenty-four, where again the uh, the river turned to blood and blood was in all of the water sources throughout Egypt. So there's an intentional parallel there. And then in the fifth bowl, uh, we see a parallel to Exodus chapter ten, verses twenty-one through twenty-three when there was exceeding darkness. So there is an intentionality with these bowls of divine wrath paralleling the plagues that were set against Egypt. Uh, Dennis Johnson emphasizes that these are covenant curses in general because they are uh, God's judgment and condemnation on the nations, not only in retribution, for their treatment of the saints, which we'll see later, but also for their failure to do the will of God. So these are covenant curses, and the parallel to uh, most of these bowls of wrath uh, have their equivalency in the book of Exodus with the plagues that were against Egypt. A second thing to note is that these bowls reflect the, uh, the Egyptian plagues also not only in their nature, but also in their targets. They're very specific in some of them, not all, but for instance, in verse 2 and also verses 9 through 11. In verse 2, it says, So the first angel went and poured, poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast Uh, the mark of the beast and worship its image. So that first bowl is very specific in terms of its target. The nature of it parallels the plagues against Egypt, but hold in mind that until the 10th plague against Egypt, they were also very specific. The things that afflicted the Egyptians had no bearing on the, the Israelites. So we see that parallel as well, but also look in verses uh, nine through eleven, it says, "And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent, and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed, and their uh, gnawed their tongues in their ang- or in anguish." And curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So some of the plagues that we've seen in, in some of the previous visions, we saw that um, they are indiscriminate, that it will affect the whole created order, and the people of God will experience them to some degree, uh, so they will suffer consequences without the loss of their souls or their salvation. But what we see here in the continuing parallel to the plagues against Egypt, that some of these plagues are specific. The target is those who are associated with the beast, those who are non-repentant, those who, are, who curse God rather than worship him. The third thing to note here is in verse 9. And verse 9 is of critical importance because of two things Uh, one it specifically uses the language of plagues so look again let's go back to verse 9 in verse 9 it says they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues now earlier when the bowls of wrath are introduced they are just simply said to be the bowls of God's wrath but these th- this wrath or these this these bowls of wrath are specifically identified here as being plagues and as plagues we can see in general the earth the whole created order is under the curse of God because of man's sin but in spe- in particular these are aimed at the people who are the enemies of God and they have been issued by God specifically as plagues. But verse 9 also is significant not only because it uses the specific language of, um, of, of plagues, but God is specifically identified as having power over the plagues. So these are not just natural occurrences these, this is the hand of God extended against his enemies. And it, it, I guess you could say that it's, it could be best understood under the, the, the realm of the sovereignty of God. So God is using very natural things as a means of putting or of, of placing a plague on the created order. So verse 9 stands out. Because it uses the language of plagues, and this, these plagues are intentional. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 32, uh, at the, uh, with the, the golden calf fiasco, and at the end of the whole scenario, when Moses comes down, uh, we are told that God placed a plague on, 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 on the, the children of Israel because of the calf. So this is, again, a very specific and divine intention that's being accomplished by these otherwise seemingly difficult things to explain, what some would call Mother Nature. Uh, Others would just simply call sickness or epidemics or pandemics or whatever. But in this instance, these are designed by God for a plague. And the target in particular is the enemies of God who have also who have who are also the enemies of God's people. The fourth thing to note here is the angelic declaration in verses five through seven. And we get this throughout the book of Revelation as these events of the bowls of wrath, the trumpets, the seals, we are reminded of of the same point that we made previously that these are specifically issued by the hand of God. But here's why uh, the angelic declaration really stands out. Uh, it's very specific in what it says. So let me just read those verses, uh, beginning in verse uh, five, um, yeah, five through seven, in verses five through seven. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So this is a summary, a summary statement of everything that's been revealed with the seals, with the trumpets, with the plagues, and even with the things that are uh, that will be addressed in the succeeding chapters. Uh, so this, this is a summary of the bowls of God's wrath. God's wrath is against, verse 9, those who do not repent and give glory to him. But also in this angelic declaration, it is God's curse against those who have harmed the saints. So remember earlier on, we said that uh, using Dennis Johnson's point of reference, that in a sense, what John sees in these various visions is an answer to the question, how long, O Lord, how long will the saints be martyred in, and they will not be avenged? So what John sees in this whole group of visions is that God will not only vindicate his own justice and his own glory, but he will also vindicate any harm that has been rendered against those that belong to him. And the angel is very specific that this is God's curse. This is God's curse for those who have cursed him. In verse 11, it says they do not, not only do they not give God glory, but in verse 11, they curse the God of heaven. So everything they get is what they have deserved. And it's hard for us to conceive of absolute justice from a divine perspective. Now, sometimes we seek absolute justice in human terms when we have personally, individually been wrong. But one way to understand God's sovereign work in creation, even in the various movements of human history, is that God is absolutely just. And therefore, his will is being accomplished to satisfy his justice. And we can also say that in the crucifixion of Christ, everything that is being experienced progressively, leading to one climactic point, is what Jesus himself experienced on the cross. He experienced the full weight of divine wrath so that the justice of God could be satisfied and he, as Paul says in Romans 4, could be just and the justifier of those who come to him by faith. So this little reminder by the angels that as difficult as it, as it appears to see the loss of human life, and, and certainly when we think of some of the things that are, are explained here, if we were to hear these reports on the nightly news— we would hopefully be gripped by a sense of of sorrow and empathy for the people who are experiencing these things. And we should, but God is just. And so even what is being experienced, especially for those targeted plagues that are against the enemies of God, it is a matter of divine justice. And so again, the angel says, you are just. O holy one and it's you who have brought these judges and the final statement is yes Lord God the, uh, the Almighty true and just are your judgments this is one of the reasons we on from from our perspective and on this side of human history we have to be careful in announcing final judgment of God on specific particular events it's in this context until the climax of human history that we are calling men and women to repent so their failure to repent is against our cause for them to repent as we proclaim the gospel of grace to them but here's the the fifth thing in uh The sixth bowl. The sixth bowl reveals the preparation for the final battle, and I use that term very specifically and intentionally, the preparation for the final battle, because the final battle is not portrayed here. It's going to be seen in chapters 19 and 20, but right now, as we saw with some of the other, uh, the sixth and the seventh, or the sixth uh, seal and the sixth um, trumpet, it's in preparation for that final judgment without actually giving, or the final battle and conflict, without actually giving the details of it. So in this sixth bowl, we see the, fi- the preparations for the final battle between God and his enemies. The location is, uh, for this final showdown is Armageddon. And so because so much baggage has been attached to the phrase Armageddon, What I want to do is look at uh, some of the particulars in this scenery and we'll conclude by what is and is not meant by the term Armageddon. The first thing that we see in verse 12 is that the waters, and and by the way, let let me pause. I know I'm being redundant, but many of the places, the physical locations that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, whether it's Babylon, whether it's the Euphrates, whether it's Armageddon, that does not mean that's the geographic location where these ultimate events will be played out. This, what's what's being played out is going to be played out on the stage of the entire earth. So it's not a a particular place. And so John is using... Old Testament places and Old Testament figures as a point of reference not because this is going to happen there. That's one of the I want to say that up front because we will kind of try to at least untangle some of the anticipations about Armageddon which means uh, the, the Mount of Giddo, uh, but, or, or Megiddo. But in any event, the first thing uh, is that's referenced is the waters of the Euphrates And again, Euphrates has a particular reference geographically and in terms of the Old Testament with Babylon. So there's an intentional parallel there because the whole of the created order outside of not or excluding the people of God are identified as Babylon. So it's no wonder that Assyria and or Babylon and some of their uh, geography. Is mentioned in, in these prophecies. So it says the waters of the Euphrates are dried up. Now that is, there is a point of reference there to an Old Testament battle and around the waters of Euphrates. But in any event, the point is the waters of the Euphrates are dried up and supposedly what that would do is give easy access to the people of God. So the waters of the Euphrates are portrayed as sort of a boundary and as a protection. But when the waters of the Euphrates are dried up, in fact, you'll see in in verse 12, um, he says, um, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So it means that they have easy access. And in giving them easy access to the people of God or uh, the Lamb and its bride, it has the appearance of vulnerability. So in other words, the vulnerability would be for the people of God. So the kings of the earth are ready to mount war against the people of God. The Euphrates is dried up so it seems as if they have easy access and therefore the people of God are vulnerable. Second thing you notice in verse 13, and it says the beast and the, or the dragon and the beast and the false prophets, they are exposed and they're exposed as being, and when I say exposed, it's exposed to the people of God. Uh, and John is just basically telling us what drives them what motivates them and what drives and motivates them are demonic spirits and you'll notice also that these demonic spirits through these individuals perform signs so again let's look at verse 13 so that we can be clear and accurate in verse 13 and i saw coming out of the mouth of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs uh, they for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God of God almighty and basically what's what's being portrayed here is that. They perform wonders, and they uh, the, the, the message, by the way, seems to be connected. And we see this elsewhere, and we'll see it especially in chapter 19, or chapters 18 and 19, that there is a connection between those who govern the kings of the earth, the beast, the dragon, and the false prophets. And so they are, this combination of false spirits and false prophecy. And and by the way, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the emphasis is placed on what comes out of their mouth. So the combination of the signs that are performed and the, the false prophecies coming out of their mouth, the point being is that what will drive the kings of the earth And what will drive those who are marked by the beast is they have fallen for a deception. That's been stressed before, but it needs to be stressed again. Deception is one of the main things that leads to the allegiance to the beast. People believing the lie. And the reason, and, and we, we looked at New Test, other New Testament parallels to this, Paul warns the Thessalonians that, in the, that the man of sin will be revealed, he will exalt himself over God in the temple of God, and they will be deceived, the people will be deceived, because this person will do lying signs and wonders, and the reason is because they have, do not have a love for the truth. So they will receive lines, uh, they will, they will uh, be deceived by lying signs and wonders. Now, we also in chapter 13 talked about the two beasts, one being more political, and then the other beast giving spiritual affirmation or religious affirmation of the first beast. And what binds them together is that they are driven by the spirit of deception, deception about themselves, the created order, and about God. So sometimes we grab the newspapers and try to look for a one-to-one correlation, and some of the things that we're seeing is so absolutely true and right here in our face, and it is the reason the church is defined by Paul as being the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we either cling to that, not only in terms of our salvation, but in terms of understanding what God is doing in his created order. Our safety and our security is in knowing the truth and then reasoning from not only redemptive truth, but reasoning from that truth into all of our other doings. So here's what we see. This combination of unclean spirits coming out of the mouth and the demonic spirits that are performing signs indicating that what draws the kings into battle and what brings people into an unhealthy allegiance or alliance with the king and the beast is deception. They have a wrong concept of truth. Here's the third thing that we see in this scene. The people of God are those who are awake. And they, because they are awake, they are not deceived. Look again at verse 14. Uh, yeah, beginning in verse 14, he says, For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. And then verses 15 and 16. Behold, I am coming like a thief. This parallels Jesus' reference to his second coming in the book of Luke. I'm coming, he says, like a thief in the night. This is not talking about a secret rapture. This is talking about him coming to consummate the truth that he has already revealed to his people. But he says, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and he keeps uh, keeping his garment on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And the point that's being made there is those who keep their garments on, those who are awake, he's not talking about work. He's talking about having a grasp of the truth and not being marked by the beast or being deceived by the message of the beast, the false prophet, or the dragon. The people of God always are governed by truth. And the truth of God's word concerning creation, salvation, And judgment. So we understand what's taking place within the created order because what John has been doing is connecting various Old Testament prophets and Old Testament imagery to indicate what is the end of human history. But that brings us to the sixth and final thing, and that's the location. And here uh, I want to reference. Dennis Johnson in a moment, but it says in verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now there's a couple of other places in this revelation where John will reference the Hebrew phrase, but then he also gives the Greek equivalent. He doesn't do it in a direct way here. So the question is, um, what is Armageddon? And Armageddon is an actual physical place in Palestine, but the place of Megiddo, which is Armageddon, the Hebrew equivalent, would be the Mount of Megiddo. But in that region, there's no mountain. And it speaks of the people of God assembling, gathered together. So the question is, is John talking about the physical location of Armageddon? Let me read what Dennis Johnson says here, and I think it's very helpful. Uh, so a couple of things. He says, um, John's vision would jar against the eschatological imagery of the ancient prophets if, it's his, pur- if it's his purpose were to identify the physical site of the last battle at so great a distance from Jerusalem. In other words, Armageddon, or the Mount of Megiddo, is at a great distance from the city of Jerusalem. And in other portions of uh, Old Testament prophecy, the final battle is identified, not that it's going to be physically there, but it's identified with Jerusalem. Let me give you two examples. Zechariah chapter 12, verse three. It will come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples, all who lifted, uh, for all peoples, all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Speaking of Jerusalem, in Zechariah chapter 14 verses uh, two and three, he says, for I will gather all the nations to battle and the city will be captured. The house is plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, Johnson quotes uh, Meredith Klein, who says that, the, that um, he argues that Armageddon, as we would pr- uh, pronounce it, represents an alternative Greek transliteration of the Hebrew expression, the Mount of Assembly. So rather than the Mount of Megiddo, the, and because that's what the Hebrew is, the Greek transliteration of that same phrase would be the Mount of Assembly or the Mount of Gathering. In which case, he says, if Klein's view is correct, the context of the name in Revelation 16, 16 does not provide or does provide its interpretation in Greek after all. It's the gathered uh, they gathered them together on the place which is called the Mount of Gathering. And the Mount of Gathering is associated with the New Jerusalem or Mount Zion. In other words, here's what, what rather than talking about a place in Palestine, what John is portraying here as the waters of the Euphrates are are, are parted, And it looks like the people are vulnerable. They are gathered in the place of meeting, which is the Holy Jerusalem, which means they are not as vulnerable as they appear. And the reason is because Jesus says that he will come like a thief and he will be in their midst. And so I think what's being portrayed here is not a physical battle between ethnic Jews in this place and that place. I think what is being portrayed here is the people of God being attacked by those who are the enemies of God because they are deceived. Uh, The enemies are deceived, and the people of God seem vulnerable. But what we will see in the succeeding chapters is that instead of being vulnerable, They are actually protected. So the place of the gathering for the final battle is not this place of Armageddon where we we see all the military forces coming together and we just hope that we will win. No, this is not Jesus coming in at the last minute and we will go through all of these battles and then we will see if we win. Jesus is coming to judge the world. And the point in which he comes to bring final judgment for the wicked and final reward for the righteous will culminate in the physical destruction of all of the enemies, which coincides with the redemption and the salvation and the reward of those who belong to the Lamb. So when we come or when Christ comes, we will be joined with him. And there, is, there are no casualties in the army of the Lamb. I hope that brings some clarity to some of these issues. We will pick up next week in looking at the seventh bowl and then what sets the stage for the reset button as we look at the final images uh, that are used by John to portray, again, the day of consummation or the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you again for your word, and we thank you for the reminder that as your people, we are protected and we are preserved. We know that we experience many things that others will experience. We do see the tumult within the world. We we, we realize that we are experiencing those things that are moving us in the direction of your consuming glory and judgment strengthen us as we go through these seasons, that we would be reminded of who we are and whose we are, and we would not lose sight of the truth. Let us be grounded in the truth, not only for public proclamation, but even for our own personal our personal growth and our understanding of the things that are going on around us. Give us a love for your truth, that we would see it, that we would know it, that we would not be deceived by the voices that rage around us. Thank you, Father, for your grace in Christ. Continue to strengthen your people for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.